The longer name for this book is Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the churches in the region of Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 11, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. Galatians 1.11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray together. God, what a joy to know that you have fulfilled and have been fulfilling and will be fulfilling your word to the Apostle Paul, even now to this very day, 2,000 years later. You're still sending your servants to the nations and calling them from the kingdom of Satan to serve the living Christ. And Lord, we've seen that this morning, and I just want to rejoice and thank you for the way that you have rescued these individuals from the kingdom of darkness and, and brought them to serve us, people who can serve with gifts of music or gifts of speaking or gifts of, of mercy, uh, those caring for our children in the nursery and in children's church. And Lord, how that's a testimony of the great work that you're doing in each of our hearts for your glory through the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for calling us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your dear Son. And Father, as we examine the gospel this morning, as we think about the reality that you have revealed your Son to us in his death and resurrection, I pray that you would change us that you would transform us, that you would change us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are any here this morning, as I hope there are, who stand far away from you, I pray that your truth, your beauty, 
and the reality of free forgiveness would be like a sweet aroma to them that would draw them in. Lord, I pray that you would save and sanctify through the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My kids uh, have a love-hate relationship with dad jokes. And uh, I kind of sympathize with that because there, there is also another category of jokes that I have a love-hate relationship with, and that is the, the category of jokes that people tell preachers. Uh, my least favorite slash most common is that preachers only work one day a week. I've never met a preacher like that. I'm, maybe there are some. Uh, but I've heard that from a few of you, and uh, we all know that it's an, an oldie and a goodie and all of that. But I actually do come into the office during the week, and I have eyewitnesses that can prove that that is the case. Uh, in fact, I'll name names today. Most Mondays, uh, when I come into the office, Shirley, who's here present with us in the gathering today, and Valerie, who is not with us this morning, uh, are there in the office, and they're counting that week's offering, and they see me come in. But there they are. They're sitting and counting the money that God's people have brought into the church that day prior, and I'm not really sure what their process is, but from what I overhear in my office as they interact with each other at Valerie's desk, I think that both of them count the various checks and bills and try to make sure that Valerie's count uh, her total that she reaches matches Shirley's total that she reaches and, and make sure that they're on the same page and that both of their totals match the count that was completed the day before by the ushers. If the counts don't match, they count again. If the discrepancy persists, they investigate until they find the error and come to some sort of resolution, and they don't complete the process until it's all figured out. Some days that takes longer than other days. Well, why is it that we follow processes like this? Well, because financial integrity is important, isn't it? Uh, Close isn't really good enough. If the usher's count says that the offering on a particular Sunday was $5,500 and then Valerie and Shirley come in the next day and they count the money and there's $5,400 and there's a discrepancy of $100, that's a big deal. Not because $100 is a huge amount of money. I mean, you can't even fill up your gas tank for that much anymore. It's a big deal because the integrity and the reliability of every person involved and our church as a whole is on the line. So they take the time to make sure that it's right. And I can tell you that they're very diligent about these things to ensure that the financial integrity of Indian Creek remains intact. This is why they independently verify the information before they close the books on that week's deposit. Well, in our passage today... The Apostle Paul's integrity is on the line. More than that, the reliability of the message that he preaches, of the gospel message itself, is on the line. Here's a guy who wrote 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. If we can't trust him to preach the real gospel, then we really can't trust anybody. This is the teaching on which our entire faith is built. In fact, in actual fact, 
In Paul's day, there were some influential and capable Bible teachers who were hoping for exactly that outcome. They were trying to cast aspersion on the the, uh, reputation of the Apostle Paul. They were trying to convince early disciples in cities where Paul had labored to plant churches that the message that they were hearing from him was not quite right, that he had gone beyond the bounds of his authority to preach a gospel that was out of step with the teachings of Jesus and his earliest followers. And the Galatian believers, these new churches, they are thrown off by this whole thing. They're thrown into confusion. They had thought Paul was sent to them by Jesus himself, but now they aren't so sure. Did he get his message really from Jesus or from a man? Did he preach to them the truth, or did he craft a message he thought would earn him power and influence? And so what Paul's going to invite the Galatian believers to do in this passage is to kind of go into the files and find the receipts and independently verify the truth of the message that he preaches, just like you might audit someone's financial records. And and I know this happened almost 2,000 years ago and in a very different part of the world. But if you think that it's just a historical curiosity, think again. Paul's defense of his role and his message is extremely relevant to us today Because in it, he offers us a series of evidences that we can apply to the messages that we receive even in our day and age. Uh, How do I know that the gospel I'm hearing, that I'm believing, that I'm telling others is the genuine article? How do I know it's not a cheap imitation? I need to know the answer because if I get it wrong, I lose everything. In this passage, we are going to see four marks, four characteristics, four evidences of the real gospel, genuine gospel preaching. If you're listening to someone and the message that they're preaching doesn't share these characteristics, then it's not the real thing. So first of all, consider with me our first characteristic. The real gospel comes from Jesus, not men. The real gospel comes from Jesus, not men. In verses 11 and 12, Paul states the fundamental concern of the entire letter. The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's main point, his main thesis. The reason why he can say that his gospel is the only real one. The reason why everyone who preaches a different gospel is accursed is because Paul's gospel came from God when God revealed Jesus in and to him. Everything else he says in chapter 1 and much of chapter 2 is given in support of this central idea. Now, why is Paul making this point? It all goes back to what he said about himself in verse 1. Remember what he said? He said, Paul, an what? An apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle is somebody who is sent on a mission by somebody else. Uh, He's a person whose authority derives from his commissioning, not from his personal insights or his talents or his abilities. That's what Paul is. And what his opponents were saying is something like, hey, Paul is not a real apostle. Paul didn't get his message directly from the Lord like the other apostles. 
He got it from somebody else. At best, that means you shouldn't listen to Paul unless his message lines up with everything that the other apostles are saying. Like you should wait and you should kind of judge what Paul is saying. At worst, and I think this is what they were really after, it means that Paul's message is altogether wrong. So you follow us. We'll give you the real gospel. And Paul says, wait a second, you've got it wrong. I didn't get my gospel from men. I got it from Jesus himself, directly. What is he talking about? Let's back up a little bit in order to learn more about this man, the Apostle Paul. It strikes me that there may be some people in this room today who don't know very much about him, so let's kind of go back and find out more about the person who wrote this letter. Most likely, Paul was born right around the same time that Jesus was born. He was born to a Jewish family from the tribe of Benjamin in the city of Tarsus, which is sort of the the regional capital. It's an important city in the region of Cilicia. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right, so forgive me. Uh, But basically, this is the southern coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. And so he was born in this capital city, Tarsus, uh, regional capital. And in, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, he's called Saul. Uh, Maybe his parents named him after King Saul. King Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin, so it would stand to reason that that's where he got his name. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear people say that his name was changed from Saul to Paul when he became a Christian. And I think if you uh, were to read the book of Acts carefully, you'd find that that's actually not the case. More than likely, like a lot of Jewish men in his day, he was given two names at birth, a Jewish name and a Greek or Latin name. Uh, Saul is a Jewish name. Paul is a Greek name. He was probably given both names at birth because he was a Jew living in a Jewish family, but he was living in a, a mostly Gentile city. Uh, and, and, and so what happens if you read through the book of Acts, which if you haven't done that yet, do it. It's, it's riveting and it's, it's edifying, please. Uh, but if you read the book of Acts, you'll find Luke calls him Saul, and then what happens is Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Saul goes to, uh, to minister among the Gentiles, and from the time he begins to minister among the Gentiles uh, to the end of the book, he's called Paul. And I think the reason that Luke does this is because Paul just came to be known by his Greek name because he spent so much time with non-Jewish people. Well, Paul tells us in Acts 22, verse 3, that even though he was born in Tarsus, he actually grew up in Jerusalem, and he was educated at the feet of a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. Uh, He very quickly rose through the ranks of leadership there in Jerusalem. Uh, One of the comments that he made in Acts 26.10, the passage that Leah read for us just a few moments ago, is that he was actually in a position to cast votes in capital cases. Now, that's authority, okay? So that's led many people to conclude that maybe Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, sort of like their Senate or their House of Representatives. And in three different instances in the book of Acts, along with several places in his letters, we're told that Paul, this man who had risen through the ranks of of leadership in the Judaistic faith, uh, actually had a unique encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, a city to the north that had a large population of Jews, and and he was on the road, 
when all of a sudden he's blinded by this heavenly light and it was Jesus himself. He was gloriously converted from an enemy of Christ to his most ardent and capable servant. And this is why Paul could say that he was an apostle. He didn't become a believer because someone preached the gospel to him like you and me. He became a believer because he was confronted and called and equipped by the risen Lord himself. And that means that everything Paul says in this capacity as an apostle carries with it the authority of the Lord. He's one that's been sent directly by Jesus. His message didn't come from men. It came straight from Jesus. Well, what does that have to do with us? You know, our temptation so often when we read the Bible is to immediately to kind of put ourselves in the spot, in the place of the most important person in that particular passage, right? You know, we're reading a story about David, and we immediately think, I'm, da- I'm like David, you know, I'm the hero of this story. We read about Jesus, and we think, well, how am I like Jesus? We relate ourselves to the most important character in the story, and this is the same temptation that we would have in a passage like this. The temptation might be to say, well, Paul got his message directly from the Lord, I want to get my message directly from the Lord. And if that's your takeaway, I think you're missing the point entirely. Paul isn't saying that his gospel came from Jesus so that we would try to have our own Damascus Road experience. He's saying that his gospel came from Jesus so that we would trust what he says. What I mean is that Paul and Peter and James and the other apostles are in a different position from us today. They are apostles. We aren't. I'm not discounting or dismissing the possibility of dramatic conversions or miracles or anything else. If God works that way in your life, wonderful. What I'm saying, though, is that the issue at hand is the reliability of the message that Paul is preaching. It came from Jesus. Therefore, whatever Paul says, we must embrace. This is why the way we do things here at Indian Creek and other similar local churches, it might be a little different from churches that you visit. If Paul's message is from Jesus, then that means our authority is found in what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in this book, namely the letters of the New Testament. And I realize that in the minds of many, that apostolic authority is something that people can wield today. You know, apostle so-and-so says, fill in the blank. And I don't mean to make any offense, but I I frankly don't take any more stock in what apostle so-and-so says than in what anybody else says. Because, in fact, I'm I'm inclined to be a little suspicious of apostle so-and-so. Because in the strict sense, Paul is using here in this letter, apostle so-and-so isn't an apostle at all. Because an apostle is someone who's directly confronted, called, commissioned, and equipped by Jesus Christ. So I don't use that term apostle to refer to anybody living today. And what's more, I don't fret over whether my pastoral authority is tied organically to uh, the historical succession from the earliest church. It doesn't ultimately matter who trained me. It doesn't ultimately matter who baptized me. It doesn't ultimately matter where I was ordained or who signed the certificate or who laid their hands on me when I was commissioned to preach the gospel in the presence of witnesses. I mean, it matters to a point to me personally, but it doesn't ultimately matter. What matters ultimately when I stand behind this pulpit is whether what I say aligns with the message that Jesus gave to Paul and the other apostles. Because when I deviate from that, when I stray from that, 
I am operating outside the bounds of my authority as a preacher because I, I don't get to just make stuff up. I don't get to get up here and tell you, hey, I had a dream the other night, and this is what God is telling you. I've got to restrict what I say to what comes from here. Paul got his gospel from Jesus, so my job is to preach the same gospel as Paul. I have no authority but the authority to preach whatever's found in this book. Nothing more, nothing less. And that's good, that's good news for you, by the way, because what you can do is you can check my work. And if I'm abusing that authority, you can look at what this book says with your own eyeballs. Now, the day is going to come when you leave this church. Now, for some of you, it will be in a box, just to be realistic. But for others, it will be because you're moving or because you're being called to some other ministry or because of some other reason, and that's okay, that happens. And if that's the case, you must join yourself to another local church, and I would enjoin you to ask, is what I'm hearing from the pulpit the same message that I read in my Bible? Not do I like the preacher, not are the kids having fun, not is this an important church in the community, nothing wrong with those questions per se, but they pale in importance to this one. Is what I am hearing, am I hearing the gospel from this pulpit? Because if you're hearing something that contradicts the message you read in Paul's letters, then you're listening to someone abuse his authority. He has no right to preach anything other than what is in this book. He will do so imperfectly. He will do so haltingly. But he better do so faithfully. And may it be true of me. And you can apply the same sort of test to any of the other messages that you hear in the world, friends. Because there are plenty of experts out there competing for the same market share of your heart. There's a difference between giving somebody good advice about how to lose weight or invest wisely or educate your children and, and someone who goes beyond that and sort of crosses the line and says, hey, if you want to make life meaningful, if you want to live the good life, then here's what you have to do. That, now all of a sudden there's giving you a gospel. And it's a false gospel unless it comes from this book. It's okay to take advice from people who know what they're talking about, advice on how to do the various things we need to do, but the problem comes in when we allow those messages to take ultimate and final authority in our lives. So if you're going to base your life on a principle or a message, it better be able to carry you not only through this life, but also past your death and into the next. And there's only one message that can do that. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed by God to Paul. Paul's gospel is the real gospel because it comes from Jesus, not from man. Therefore, we can trust what he says. But notice a second mark of real gospel preaching. The gospel, the real gospel, transforms lives. The real gospel transforms lives. This is so encouraging. Notice how unashamed Paul is to share his past sins with the very people who want to roast him alive. I mean, Look at verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Like he comes right out and says that right in front of the people who were questioning him. 
He's not ashamed of it at all. Luke tells us what Paul was really like before he met Jesus in the book of Acts. Just months after Jesus rose from the dead, uh, the early church was growing rapidly, and, and they couldn't handle the administration of, of, the, of the church and the, the various needs that the members had. And so they institute this extra layer of leadership called deacons. And one of those deacons is named Stephen, and he's, a, he's a, an incredible preacher of the gospel. And Stephen goes out into the temple one day, and he starts preaching the gospel so convictingly that Paul and his colleagues get so angry that they literally pick up stones and begin to throw those stones at Stephen's body until he died. Imagine the blood flowing and the bones crunching and they keep throwing and then they wipe the sweat from their brow and the grime from their hands and they go into the synagogue and they study the Bible. Paul was a, an evil man, a murderer. And then to learn that after, he, after that he kept going, he kept beating down the doors of the followers of Jesus and dragging them away to prison flogging them, consenting to their deaths. Paul was an eager participant in a culture of death and destruction and hatred, and he was rewarded handsomely for his participation in that culture. His colleagues loved him. They trusted him. They gave him whatever he asked for. People like that, listen, people that are that deep in that sort of culture, they don't just up and walk away for no reason. Paul had tasted power. There is no way he was about to give any of that up. He was on his way to becoming one of the most important Pharisees in the world. He was the type of guy, when he walked in the room, everybody sort of like hushed their conversation, looked his direction. He was a man of influence. Paul, uh, old men would rise from their seats out of respect. The wealthy would change their business strategies on Paul's counsel. He was respected. When the great ones would gather in the room where it happens, they would say, where's Paul? Make sure Paul's here. He was a guest of the first families of the city of Jerusalem, and when he dined with them, they would serve the best food and the best wine. Listen, I've never been in that position, but people who live there, they don't really want to leave that. They like the power. They like the influence. Yes, they would rather sometimes take a break from the responsibility, but they'll bend over backwards to keep those perks coming. They go to great lengths to curate their reputation. It's like they get drunk on the praise of men. And Paul would have been no different. There was no human reason why he would have ever deviated course from where he was going. Why, he, why, why would he give any of it up? Something big must have happened. Something massive. And he testifies in multiple places that an unforgettable experience was the only thing that could have shaken him out of his stupor. The risen and glorified Jesus, dazzlingly immense, breathtakingly beautiful, scarred yet robed in glory, called him by name. Saul, Saul. Paul puts it this way in verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Immediately, his course of life, his whole outlook, his understanding of the decisions he had been making, his goal, his understanding of the good life, all of it was in an instant gloriously transformed. And in the coming days, that transformation would continue as the message of the cross and the empty tomb rewired his soul. He saw in a moment that he had been set apart by Christ, for Christ, from before he was born. He was captured by the call of God's grace. 
drawn away from what he immediately saw as the the maggot-infested, soggy cereal of the, the food that he was eating in a former life and drawn toward the sumptuous feast of knowing Christ and resting in his righteousness. He was changed. Did you know that you can change? Did you know that you don't have to keep walking the path of despair and destruction and evil and shame and fear and emptiness like the world tells you you can't change? But the gospel tells you, you can, and gives us so many examples. Did you know that there's a better way than to just pile up excuses for yourself and keep doing what you know isn't right? You don't have to live in terror of the opinions of other people. You don't have to be a slave to worry. You don't have to be dominated by addiction. You don't have to try to scrape and scramble for the pleasures of this fleeting world, knowing that your life is slipping away faster than you can even think about it. You don't have to destroy your spouse and your kids with your bitterness. You don't have to go through your day with ulcers in your stomach because of the anxiety that is so consuming you because of the latest thing you've seen on the news. You don't have to wallow in anger over the ways that others have stepped on you or slighted you or dismissed you or treated you like you were stupid. You don't have to carry the burden of guilt and shame and misery that is dragging you to hell itself. You can change. You say, how do, how, what do I have to do to change? Well, it's not really something that you do. It, it's something that you see. It's something that you come to understand through the mysterious and wonderful working of God. Here's what you have to see. That you are utterly hopeless to escape the unquenchable anger of God burning towards the sin that that causes his wrath to be poured out on the children of men and all the suffering that we see in the world. You cannot escape it, and every attempt that you make to pull yourself away from that is like trying to clean yourself off with gangrenous rags. It's just going to make it worse. And yet God, the Father, had an idea from eternity past. He loved the world. And he sent his one and only son into the world so that whoever believes in him would not be destroyed, would not perish, would not perish in in hell forever, but could have everlasting life, could be forgiven from his sins, could be welcomed into the family of God so that every bitter thought and every evil twisted desire and deed that you have committed that hangs like a curse over your head was pressed into Jesus until not a shred of it is left. He has already done the work, and all you have to do is say, yes, I'd like that. And to think that this was God's idea, sometimes we think Jesus is nice, God the Father is not nice. That's not true. This was God's plan. From the very beginning, that God took the initiative while we were running headlong in the opposite direction, while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies, when that truth takes hold of your heart, it can make the dead alive. And in the born-again sinner, made new, even though the sinful nature still rages in us like a terrorist sleeper cell, the more we allow our minds and our affections to be shaped by this truth, the less power that sin holds over us. You, you can change. That's what the real message of Jesus Christ does. How do I know the gospel is real? It transforms lives. 
Paul's just one of countless examples of transformed lives. This is one of the reasons I love reading church history. If you don't read church history, you're missing out on some wonderful, glorious examples of transformed life. The history of God's church is filled with miraculous and unlikely transformations of souls. I love reading about Augustine's walk through his garden when he read from Paul's letter from the from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, "Put on the Lord Jesus Christ," and his eyes were opened and he was transformed. I love reading of the great revivals of the 18th century when Jonathan Edwards warned his staid and straight-laced, buttoned-up congregation to flee from coming wrath, and dozens were instantly cut to the heart and were gloriously transformed and had confidence in Christ that they were accepted in the Beloved. I love hearing and reading John Wesley's journal as he tells of a prayer meeting where upon hearing... Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans, he felt, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and he was born again. Love reading about the ministry of Thomas Boston, a Puritan preacher whose ministry was dry and lifeless until he began to understand the glory of the gospel, after which his preaching was characterized by what he called a certain tincture that began to change the people's lives in his parish. I like reading about the Ministry of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who purposely cut away the frills and the programs at Westminster Chapel, but he preached the gospel with so much intensity that thousands in post-war London were transformed and permanently changed. And if you track the lives of the people that were impacted by these ministries, you see it wasn't a flash in the pan. It wasn't just the, the decision of a moment. It was a life change. And if the gospel Paul preached... The gospel Augustine preached, the gospel John Wesley preached, the gospel Thomas Boston preached, the gospel Jonathan Edwards preached, that Dr. Lloyd-Jones preached, so dramatically and permanently changed the lives of so many and resulted in holiness and self-sacrifice and lasting joy. Apart from any pragmatism or worldly wisdom, that's the gospel I want to preach Jesus told his disciples in John 15, he said, I'm appointing you and sending you to bear fruit, fruit that remains. Not just raised hands or temporary tears or the excitement of a moment, but of transformed lives. And as I look across this room, I see so many people who that is your testimony for decades, that your life's trajectory is so different from what it was before you met the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, find people who can share with you the glories of life transformation from the gospel. Listen to their testimony and rejoice in the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a gospel I want to make sure is heard from this pulpit. And I I want to study hard and I want to pray hard so that I make sure that my message is on point with what that message is. The real gospel is... A gospel that comes from Jesus, not from man. It transforms lives. Thirdly, the real gospel aligns with eyewitness testimony. The real gospel aligns with eyewitness testimony. Uh, After Paul met Jesus, he didn't consult with anybody. He spent three years between Arabia and Damascus. And only then, only after those three years, did he go to Jerusalem. Uh, Now keep in mind... Paul is laboring to show two things. He's trying to show that his gospel could not have come from any human being, that he got it directly from Jesus. 
But he's also laboring to show that even though Jesus gave him this gospel directly, it wasn't different from the message that the other apostles were preaching. Like Jesus didn't tell Peter one thing and then go over here and tell Paul a different thing and like forget what he had told Peter. That's not the Jesus that we serve. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Paul wants to show, yes, I got my message directly from Jesus, not from anybody else. But it, but it does align with the message that you hear from the other apostles. And so he does this, and uh, it, it's, it's like when Valerie and Shirley count our offering. They count individually, but they need to arrive at the same number. They want to individually verify it. That's what Paul is communicating here. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, he says, I spent so much time in Arabia. Uh, Luke does not mention this in the book of Acts when he talks about this period in Paul's life. Uh, Arabia is actually part of uh, the Nabataean Empire in the first century, for those of you who care about these sort of things. Uh, it's ruled by a king uh, during this time by the name of Aratas IV. It was Aratas IV that grew angry with Paul. And Paul does talk about this in the book of Acts. He says that when he was in Damascus, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him, and he had to escape through a window in the wall of the city in a basket. They let him down the wall in a basket hung by a rope. And uh, in, in one place, Paul uh, describes that plot against him, and he says it was Aratas IV that, that was plotting with the Jews. But anyway, he had to escape through a window in the wall, and he gets back, and he finally makes this trip to Jerusalem. He connects with Peter, and he ends up getting some face time with James. So uh, this person, Cephas, that he talks about here in Galatians chapter 1, that's an Aramaic word that means rock. Uh, the Greek word is Petros, Peter. So this is Peter that he's talking about here. Uh, you, maybe you call him Rocky. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but he, he meets Rocky. And uh, he's there only for two weeks. And, and he also meets James, the brother of the Lord. James didn't become a believer in Jesus until after the death and resurrection of Christ. But he was an eyewitness of all these things. And so he's listed among the apostles. And he, he meets with these two men. And then he preaches in the temple publicly a few times. But after just two weeks... He tells us in the book of Acts that as he's praying in the temple, the Holy Spirit kind of brings him into a trance, and he says, you need to leave, and you need to do ministry in Syria and Cilicia. Go back to Tarsus, your hometown. Go minister in Antioch, where there's a fledgling church. And so he really doesn't have time to get to know anybody except for these two individuals. And what that meeting demonstrates is that Paul's gospel that he had learned independently from the risen and ascended Christ is the very same message that Jesus taught and confirmed by the Holy Spirit to the minds of the other apostles. Paul's gospel aligns with the eyewitness testimony of the other apostles. It's the same gospel. Amen. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that I get a fuzzy feeling when I think about him. It is that in real time, in real space, God really sent his son Jesus into the world and he really died on the cross for our sins and he really was buried in the tomb dead and he really rose from the dead in history. It's not a fable. It's not a morality tale. It's a declaration of an act of God in actual history. And that means that the preaching of the gospel is the preaching of a crucified and risen Savior, not the teachings of a sage or a scholar. That's The teachings of Jesus are, are authorized by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is not, what would Jesus do? 
as important a question as that might be, the gospel is what Jesus did. It's not listen to his teaching. That's not enough because if Jesus didn't die for us and rise again, then his teaching isn't anything more than good advice. How do I know that I'm believing the real gospel? Because it aligns with the eyewitness testimony of what God in Christ did in the world in the first century A.D. It aligns with eyewitness testimony. Finally, the real gospel is shared by believers everywhere. The real gospel is shared by believers everywhere. Verses 21 through 24 demonstrate to us that Paul left Jerusalem before he really had a chance to get to know any of the believers in Judea in person. Uh, Keep in mind, Judea is a fairly large area, so even though he was spending two weeks in Jerusalem, uh, he would not have had the chance to go visit all these other churches in the countryside, and none of them were able to get to know Paul in person. But they did hear about him. They heard, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That was Paul's reputation for years afterward while while he was in Syria and Cilicia. You see, the false evangelists were traveling around uh, the Galatian churches, these ones that had recently been planted, and they were saying, listen, Paul is a lone wolf. Like, he's not appreciated and, and, and celebrated among the other believers, especially the ones around Jerusalem in Judea. You need to... You need to reject him because he's a lone wolf. But the truth was that for more than a decade, Paul is preaching a message that the first churches celebrated. He says, they glorified God because of me. Isn't it wonderful that you can go anywhere in the world and fellowship with followers of Christ and get excited about the very same Jesus? You might speak a different language. You might have been raised in a different culture. You might eat different food. You might have different priorities in the way that you spend your time, but you can still glorify God because of them. This is a mark of the true gospel. Isn't it wonderful that God can reach down and save a murderer like Paul and that the very Christians that he threw into prison just a few years prior are now rejoicing because he is preaching the gospel. That the oppressed can rejoice in the transformation of the oppressor. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring something like this about. Scholars call this feature of the early church, uh, this is a big word, Catholicity. Uh, Our faith is a Catholic faith. You say, wait, what? What do you mean by that? Not Catholic with a capital C, Catholic with a small c, not Roman Catholic. The word Catholic means according to the whole. Uh, Actually, by the way, this series in Galatians, sometimes Roman Catholic theology is going to get thrown under the bus, okay? It's not because I have... Uh, like a vendetta against Catholics or anything like that. It's just because it kind of is just relevant to that. Uh, But anyway, back on track, the, the, the structure of the Roman Catholic Church is the very opposite of real Catholicity. Catholic doesn't mean everybody worships in lockstep with what the hierarchy tells them to do. No, what it means is that believers from different cities and different regions and different Uh, ages and different cultures, they've all met the same Jesus and believe the same gospel, and they're unified with one another. This is the gospel according to all believers. I love that. Just the other day, I met two pastors from two totally different regions, from two totally different backgrounds, and immediately we started to talk about Jesus and how God was, was working in our lives, and 
And we were able to enjoy real fellowship in the gospel. And we glorified God because of each other. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying the gospel I preach to you is the very gospel that causes believers everywhere to glorify God. Well, Indian Creek, what about us? Can others glorify God because of us? If all true believers were shown what we really embrace as our core message, would they recognize Jesus in that message or something else? Would believers in Africa or Indonesia or Afghanistan, believers from the 5th century or the 15th century, be able to glorify God because of me, because of the message that I preach from this pulpit? There are a lot of innovations out there. I'll tell you one. It's very in the news this month. A lot of people preaching a Jesus who embrace, embraces an unbiblical sexual ethic. We must be so much smarter than every other believer in every other area of the world at every other time in church history. Who knew Jesus is fine with sexual promiscuity and sexual perversion? Did Jesus change? Did he tell modern Western white people something that he forgot to say to all the Africans and Asians in the early church? I don't know about you, but I'd rather take the gospel that Paul preaches over the new and improved gospel we hear from so-called progressive preachers and publishers today. And listen, there are plenty of other innovations out there, plenty of people preaching a gospel that is more American, more Texan than it is Christian. So-called Christians who are more comfortable around unbelievers just because they enjoy the same type of music or watch the same news channel that they do than they are around followers of Jesus Christ. No, the real gospel is like a gravitational center of unity for all believers everywhere. The more we make life about that, the easier it is for us to glorify God because of all the other believers that we meet. But the further we stray from the message of the cross of Christ, the easier it is to clump together on the basis of something that, quite frankly, is just dumb. So here's the question. Do we want to be a church with cliques and clubs where birds of a feather flock together, where the young and the old and the rich and the poor and the city folks and the rural folks don't hang out with each other? Do you want to be a church that's known for something that isn't going to last? There's the church with the cool youth group. That's the church with the cool music. That's the church all the guys really like to hunt. That's the church where people love sports. I mean, do we really want to be known by that sort of thing? No. How about this? Let's be a church that stays close to the cross. Because when we do that, we know we're a church whose foundation isn't built by human hands, but by the powerful working of God. A church where lives can change for good, not just feel better in the moment. A church that's grounded in the rock-solid reality of the empty tomb. A church that stands united with God's people all around the world and in our city. You stay close to the cross. You'll meet others there too. And you'll glorify God because of them. Others who are changing into the image of Jesus. And friends, I want to stay there. I want the real gospel. I want to see God work through it. I want God's, God's message, not the message that comes from man. I want, to, I want to see a message work and change lives. I want to preach a gospel that aligns with the testimony of the eyewitnesses recorded in the New Testament. And I want to preach a gospel that I can 
celebrate with all of God's people one day in the new creation. Would you pray with me?